I've been listening to Lord of the Rings music, so I thought, why not? Let's start with Lord of the Rings music. It's quite pleasant. So there's all these fun ambiance uh, channels on YouTube. Check it out, people. So hello, everybody. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's dive right in. I think the way I want to do this today is I'm going to read a section of the verses, and then I'll make some comments on it, and then I'll read another section, make some comments, and that's how we're going to do this. Um, I will post my sentence diagram chart in case you're you're curious and you want to look at that. Somebody made a comment that the, the sentence diagram was helpful. So it is a cool way to organize your understanding of a New Testament letter, because man, there's just clauses all over the place. So it can help show um, how you're understanding the passage and what you think the big ideas are. So hopefully it's something helpful as a reference. It helps me as I prepare these lessons for you guys, organize what I want to highlight. So if it posts, if it, I'll post it. And if it helps, great. Um, if it doesn't, then that's fine. That's fine. So let me pray real quick. God, I pray that as we hear your word, we'll be instructed, we'll be convicted, and we'll be challenged by your spirit. Amen. I'll read the first couple verses. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. So in the previous verses, Peter's mentioned that the Christians he's writing to have heard the word of the good news about how King Jesus has ransomed them. And he says they've been born again. So I think Peter might be picking up on that theme of being born again in these verses and using that as an illustration. He says they become new people. And so there's certain behavior that's no longer appropriate for them. What is appropriate for them is to crave spiritual milk that will grow them up into salvation. So here he's using, in these first three verses, an analogy of being a baby. They are to crave this spiritual milk. I wonder what you guys would think craving this pure spiritual milk would refer to. That's a good question to ponder. And maybe Peter, in the next section, will give some hints as to what that refers to in the various activities of our day as a community of Christ followers. Remember, Peter has Leviticus 19.2 on the brain, which says Israel is holy because God is holy. Just like Israel had been set apart and given a holy status, so too has the Christian community Peter is referring to. So things like malice and deceit, envy, hypocrisy, um, these don't fit with their calling. It's like a Duke fan wearing a North Carolina hoodie. People, it just doesn't work. 
<laughs> so uh, in the next section, he's going to switch analogies now from being a baby to thinking about the temple. Verses 4 through 7 now. Peter writes, As you come to him, the Lord Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, and this is Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and now Peter quotes two other verses from Psalm and another from Isaiah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here in these verses, Peter again has transitioned from talking about the, the Christian being a baby to thinking about the temple. And the Jewish temple is obviously what he's got on his brain. Little history lesson here, shout out history teachers. At the time of his writing, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing, probably in about 10 years. Jerusalem's gonna be attacked by the future Roman Emperor Titus, and the, temper, the temple is going to be destroyed, set on fire. <laughs> a lot of Bible scholars think this is what Jesus is actually referring to when he tells the disciples that the stones of the temple would soon fall. So this is a message that Jesus gives at the end of the Gospels. This was the second temple, or it's called Herod's Temple, because King Herod had led an expansion of the building. The first temple had been destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire in around 587 BC. So our history lesson is done. Now let's talk about the significance of this place. Why was this place such a big deal? The temple was the place where God's presence was found. So if we cash that in, we get some pretty amazing theological ideas to think about. So here we go. Peter says something about Jesus first, and then he talks about the Christian afterwards. So right now, let's just talk about what he says about Jesus. He says Jesus is the precious cornerstone of God's temple. <laughs> little background here on the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone that was laid down when a building was constructed, and it carried tons of the weight of the building. And that seems to make sense to say Jesus is the stone. A new temple was being made. He was the first stone. Peter is actually quoting Isaiah 28, 16 here, he's actually giving a reference to 
Isaiah 28.16, when he says that Jesus is a stone chosen and precious. Because he's going to actually say later, um, he's going to quote the verse when referring to the Christian community as being um, a, uh, a temple community, a, a spiritual house. So in verse 4, it's just a quick allusion, a, a reference to it when he, when he talks about Jesus. So this makes sense. A, a new temple is being made. Herod's temple is actually going to be destroyed in 10 years. The disciples freaked out when he said that, that the temple had become such a, a significant component of their faith and their identity. And rightfully so, in regards to their faith, it was a big deal. It was where God's presence is. But you, you and I both know that in the New Testament, the temple of God was transitioning from a building to a community by God's Spirit. So um, when, when New Testament authors quote a verse in the Old Testament. I just want you to be aware of the fact that they're not just quoting that verse. I, I think I've said this before, but it is such a big deal. So when you see that a New Testament author is quoting a verse, you always want to treat it like a hyperlink. And you want to go back and check out the verses um, around that verse in the Old Testament. And so here, Isaiah 28 is being quoted. And so if you just click on Isaiah 28, let's let's just see what happens. So I think I have enough time to actually just read Isaiah 28. So let's do it, huh? Why not? Okay. Here we go. Isaiah 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those who overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord is the one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priests and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in given judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? 
and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk. Hmm, that's interesting. Those who are taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. To whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Do you hear the exile language? Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. So here the, the prophet is saying the word has come to the leaders of Jerusalem, and they've rejected it. Do you see the parallel, guys? So here we have verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one, sorry, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and you will, in your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself on. For the Lord will rise up on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the whole land. So this is all exile language here. The temple is going to be destroyed. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and, and harrow his ground? When he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, and emmer in its border? Almost done, guys. <clears throat> for he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. It's like he's saying there's got to be discipline here. Does one crush grain for his bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cart wheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This is also, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. A lot of exile language here. A lot of language about rejecting the word of the Lord. And there's language here about a remnant and, and also, guys, about um, those who are not a people who are going to receive this message. But yet there's restoration language at the end for God's people. 
He's, this is not the way it's going to be forever. So, so much going on in there. Um, in Isaiah 28, you read that God is confronting Israel and its leaders and will be giving his message to a foreign people. And later in the chapter, this is a promise that God will not bring judgment on Israel forever. And this all sounds like Romans 9 through 11. Well, the, the message of Jesus is that the chief stone has become the stumbling stone. And this message has been given to another. It's, it's the Gentiles. So later, Peter's going to quote Isaiah 8, which refers to God in the sanctuary and his message being like a stone that people will stumble on and, and lead to the Assyrian Empire overtaking them. So destruction and exile of Israel is all in view here. And Peter's using that and connecting it with what has happened with Jesus and, and the Christians. And there's some reference in there to how they were destined to do so, but I am going to move on because I only have three minutes left. So verses 9 and 10, a reflection on who the Christian community is. And notice the, the, the Israelite terms. He says in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. What stands out to me here is the, the way Peter connects the temple language to the people of God. So think about this. Peter is saying that they are living stones. They're a part of this spiritual temple now. And it has to do with their daily lives. So I was thinking about priests in the Old Testament and how they would bring sacrifices and they would help people who are bringing sacrifices. And now Peter is saying, this is what the Christian community is. We are bringing our sacrifices and and we're helping other people bring those sacrifices. We, we don't need a building anymore. We are the temple. We don't need a priest anymore. We are the priests. We're a holy priesthood. And we are involved in the confessing of sins. And we don't need to bring an animal, of course, because Jesus is that sacrifice. In, in the next phrase, it stands out to me that he says, the reason why the church is chosen. They're chosen to proclaim God's excellencies because he's brought them out of darkness into light. So I'm going to say more about this later, but this is the church calling. We are saved to put God, uh, the spotlight on God. We are his image bearers. He says to the recipients that they once were not God's people, and now they have become God's people. And this was a really big issue, right, in the first century, um, especially if he's got a lot of Gentiles on the brain. How do Gentiles become holy? I mean, they, how do they enter the, enter the temple? Gentiles were viewed as unclean, and, and God is blowing all of that up. Remember, Peter is the one who had the vision about the Gentiles going into Cornelius' house, and I wonder if he's thinking about some of that here. Last section is uh, verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this final section, Peter uses the term sojourners and exiles again. And we've talked a lot about how that connects with Israel. Peter is saying that the issues that Israel had in Babylon with idolatry, sexual morality, food, uh, unclean foods, all of that parallels what Christians experience uh, today. So the Christians that Peter's writing to, and of course for us as well, how do we live in a community that's given its allegiance to spiritual evil that is not in allegiance with, with King Jesus? There's three ways that Christians have tried to think about this over the years. A Christ against culture approach, which Christians separate from culture. A Christ over culture approach, where Christians confront culture in, in seeking power. And then there's a Christ in culture, where Christians seek to transform the culture uh, by living in it. I'm going to talk more about those later, but right now I'm, I'm just processing um, these, these ideas and, and thinking through this. So Peter says there's a war going on, and the kingdom's coming, but it hasn't come yet. And so how are Christians to, to live in, in a community that has not given its allegiance to Jesus? So again, I wonder if Peter has the Old Testament on the brain and thinking about uh, Daniel and his buddies who were in Babylon, accused of being wrong, not submitting to the values of, ba- of Babylon, and God uses their faithful testimony to the point where the king submits himself to God. So as as you've listened to Peter's challenge to the Christian exilic community, curious if something has challenged you. So I'm going to end with a couple questions and then Lord of the Rings music as well. So did some truth about what Christ has done or who you are as a part of God's people, temple people, move you in some way? And then did Peter's charge to the community challenge you in some way?